0: song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond, he's David Gibb, and this is How Wrestling Explains the World. Exciting episode, as always, this week, David, I I actually, uh, it's going to be weird because one of the people we're going to be talking about a lot in this episode is David Attenborough because we are doing nature documentaries, so I might have to like work on my pronouns a little bit.
1: pronouns pal oh, yeah 100 percent. plus i mean you
0: could refer to me as dave which many people do i don't see dave
1: i don't see david attenborough as a dave
0: <laughs> he probably exclusively goes by dave and is a party animal but uh,
1: <laughs> uh i just said it with two completely different regional accents sorry i'm awful i'm a terrible american Ignore me, all international listeners, if you exist.
0: Actually, they do. We have several from England, so that's exciting. No, uh, far out. So I definitely offended them. <laughs> no, well, you offended them by being Welsh to begin with.
1: So.
0: That's true. I know that as an Irishman and as an Englishman, I offend myself. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this week we decided to do nature documentaries. And a funny thing happened on the way to the episode, which is that, like, I had a plan uh, we were gonna mostly focus uh, this episode on how technology has changed the nature of nature documentaries over the years and we're definitely going to talk about this this week. But then I was doing some research and I had kind of forgotten or just like pushed out of my mind a really important fact about most nature documentaries, which is that they're total bullshit. Hmm. So we're not total bullshit. But um, that there are literally uh, groups of people, like companies, especially in the United States, who train wild animals to star in different nature documentaries, whether it be for the entire nature documentary or uh, specific pieces of footage. And I actually, there is a really interesting, and I I sent Dave uh, uh, this video, and I will be putting it in the show notes. It is part of a 45-minute or so uh, expose by uh, the cbc on nature documentaries and animals and film uh, called cruel camera it is a follow-up it is like the 2007 i think follow-up to a 1982 expose where they literally ask prominent nature documentarians whether or not they staged things here i have a clip from david Attenborough, actually that i'm about to play which kind of gets into it and then we'll talk about what David says here because I think it's really important and it's why I think we kind of shifted our focus of the episode. So here's David Attenborough on the CBC talking about the use of animal staging and hired animals in nature documentaries. According to Animals of Montana, their customers include National Geographic, IMAX, even the gold standard for wildlife programming the BBC Natural History Unit. Not on that list is the most respected name in all of wildlife film, Sir David Attenborough, who's
2: produced and presented natural history documentaries for decades. I've never in my life uh, made a documentary in which we've gone to a tame animal or an animal trainer and say, please, would you train an animal to do this? Never.
0: To... But Sir David acknowledges the pressures on filmmakers to get the sensational shot.
2: You can lie in print, you can lie on film, you can lie in radio. You, the, the ability to tell untruths is, is huge, of course. Um, uh, but uh, reputable uh, naturalistic filmmakers do not lie. They tell the truth. And they, uh, and, uh, but telling the truth is a, is, an, uh, is a simplification. It's often very difficult to tell the truth. Um, but that's what we try to do.
0: So, uh, Dave, how do you feel about that quote? Does that feel very wrestling to you?
1: Oh yeah. hundred percent, especially when he's insisting that he would never lie, but it's very difficult to tell the truth. I thought that was especially cute at the end there.
0: And, uh, in the larger, uh, cl- cause that's one minute of about a 15 minute section between the 12th and the 27th minute to go, n- uh, nerdy wrestling podcast on you, um, during that section, you actually learn that there is one shot, basically, in the history of David Edinburgh's career where it's kind of faked, but he even he is bothered by that. So I, I do think for him it is a legitimate thing, but he also kind of I don't want to say ignores, but the point isn't addressed. That like though, I, I guess he does talk about it to give him some credit. That it requires so many resources to actually tell the truth in nature documentary uh, that it's almost prohibitively expensive. It, It is so much easier to have animals that are trained to do the things you observe animals doing in the wild than actually doing the thing. And I think that becomes a thing in wrestling where it becomes a lot easier to do like the cheap gimmick or the cheap booking than to just actually earn the natural reaction that you're trying to develop. And I think that's one of the problems wrestling had and is working on. And I think nature documentaries had the same problem and they're getting more like, we'll get into the evolution of them, but I I feel like there is a much more active, like look and activist feel to nature documentaries that are trying to tell very intimate stories about the individual lives of animals in the world in a way that they used to not. And I think part of that is that you have these massive units, these BBC natural units to do it, but you used to not. It used to just be like a film studio, literally like dumping. There's a story from White Wilderness of of Walt Disney literally staging an entire mountainside and pushing a polar bear cub down that mountainside to get a shot. Like, this shit is rampant. And it's something you saw a lot more in old wrestling. They would create these, like, stories around these people that were just fake. And they would tell you all of these things about these people because that's all they could do. They couldn't afford to do anything else. Right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, the classic examples. Like, I mean, they when uh, when uh, Mark Callis first came to, I'm not sure if it was Dallas or Memphis. They might have both been the USWA at the time. But, I mean, his original backstory was that he was a murderer. (laughs) You know, like whatever quick little backstory you could throw up, you know, to to create some depth was really was uh, you would do what you could, you know. But it's interesting because you said earlier, you know, that it's the idea of it's so hard to tell the truth that you eventually need to tell a lie. And that really kind of gets at when wrestling became what we think of as pro wrestling, like when it transformed in the early 20th century, most likely from, you know, a somewhat or totally legitimate athletic spectacle on one end to something that, you know, became intentionally false, you know, to give people that athletic truth, um, a really enjoyable show that was worth their money. They started to tell a lie. So even the way you frame things from the very beginning, um, I hadn't thought about this much till you kind of floated the idea past me just the other day, but even just hearing you explain that and playing the clip, I'm kind of already making the connection in my head.
0: And I think it's really important to start from the beginning, understand the beginning, uh, in that context, the beginning of, Uh, nature documentaries, Uh, for the most part, there was um, what the Disney production team did. Uh, Walt Disney Productions was really big on nature documentaries, uh, Walt Disney in particular. Um, They actually won the Academy Award in 1958, 1959, for uh, Best Documentary. Uh, And I I think what people saw when they saw that was this, uh, was what... (laughs) for lack of a better term, Walt Disney's idea of what nature was and should be on film. It's not to say that everything was faked, but more of it was faked than I think you would be comfortable. Like, uh, White Wilderness is famous for two things. One is the, the thing I mentioned earlier with the polar bear being shoved down a hill in a film studio the other one is the lemmings like uh if you've ever heard the concept of lemmings committing suicide there was even a computer game when we were younger that came Hmm, a series uh, of computer games yeah that came from white wilderness and it was a total lie that walt disney basically just made up but because our understanding of animals was so much less, what you saw was these archetypes of animals. Uh, another example is there's this, uh, the other popular nature documentaries were uh, called, uh, mutual of, of Omaha's, Omaha's wild kingdom. Sorry. <laughs> no, that that is, it was an important part of like American television for basically 40 years. Um, it's an inc- or th- I think thirty years. Uh, it's incredibly uh, important and significant nature documentary in terms of making nature documentaries popular for Americans, um, or just in general with television audiences. They would do episodes like Lion Country, and in Lion Country, it would focus. For instance, uh, this was just one episode I watched on two, uh, three young male cubs, and they had they basically framed lions as the king of the beasts but the problem is is because it's a lion they focus on the male lions but they don't really acknowledge that all the female lions do all of the work so it's basically like this weird thing where they're trying to write around the fact that their subjects aren't really doing anything and never really do anything other than get into fights with other male lions and steal food. But they treat it as though lions, male lions in particular are these noble creatures. And that just does not fit with our understanding of the scientific evidence, but it was framed as like, these are the archetypes of these animals. And this is what you're going to understand about the stories of these animals lives, but the lives of these animals weren't... It's not true. And that happened a lot in wrestling. Like, everybody... Everything was so fake. Like, the realest person was Bruno, and he, like... Yeah, he escaped from the Nazis and stuff like that, but they also made him into a much bigger, like, thing than he was. He wasn't... And, and all of... We talked about this in the first episode all of the communists they made it was all these like ideas and archetypes it was very structuralist
1: oh yeah 100 percent. i mean it's coming from it's definitely coming from the place where you have an auteur with a vision uh be it walt disney or vince mcmahon like you were talking before about how disney didn't you know present nature as truth uh walt disney presented the version of nature that he thought uh had the the proper characteristics told the right story and uh, and he he was presenting what he thought you wanted to see, or what he thought was the way things should be. And I mean, what's the joke about Vince McMahon that they always use on OSW review? Uh, wow, how did I say that? OSW review. Uh, he, they always do the joke about uh, you don't like what you think you like. Uh, you like what I tell you to like. You know, and 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 there's definitely that in there's definitely some of that in both Walt Disney and Vince McMahon. That reality isn't interesting enough, or reality isn't epic enough, or reality isn't real enough. It's too boring. You need to heighten it by, by dressing it up or by forcing moments that would never organically happen to happen. I know um, a really famous example of this, I think it came out in the 90s, was that uh, Jacques Cousteau, uh, the, the famed you know, uh, oceanographer and documentarian, that that, uh, that that he once so would, would throw bleach in the face of an octopus or a squid to get it to, to do the scared reaction where it shoots the ink and stuff. And there really is there so on one hand, you've got people like McMahon or Disney who are specifically trying to kind of sculpt narratives and, and present a certain manly uh, way of looking at the world. But then on the other hand you have you know Cousteau, the oceanographer, the scientist, And the demands of the genre are causing him to do things that are against his values as a conservationist. And that really kind of connects to the whole difficulty of the genre. Um, The whole whole time I've been thinking about this, it's almost like uh, nature documentaries are still made on film. When you talk about the way time was so precious when you were recording on film and work hours, man hours, money hours were so important when you were working on film. And even though we've moved on to digital, um, nature documentaries still deal with a lot of those same constraints because if you're sending people on location, you can only take so many days there. You can only put so much equipment on the plane to go to Malaysia or Myanmar or wherever, you know? So it's really, really interesting that, that they're working in this very constrained environment that, uh, that, that attracts uh, both fabulists like McMahon and Disney, but also drives really hardworking, honest people like that story about Jacques Cousteau to to do some things that they wouldn't ordinarily do. There's, there's sort of a lot more pathos to nature documentaries than the surface would really suggest.
0: Yeah. And uh, there's a really famous story from wild kingdom. Um, The man who created basically popularized uh, wild kingdom was a man named Marlon Perkins. Marlon Perkins appeared on the first cruel camera. The one I mentioned earlier, he punches the reporter for asking a question, he's like, "Turn off the camera." And the guy doesn't right away, and he punches him because uh, he was very angry at the idea that he was staging things. But it was pretty unequivocal. There's a really famous uh, oh, Dr. D. John's docile moment right there. Exactly. It's the idea of you're forcing me to break the illusion. The truth is hard, and I, I like David Attenborough is totally right. And like and like you were saying, he has. And this isn't a knock on David Attenborough. He does an incredible job. Uh, He is, like, really a revolutionary figure in the history of television and nature documentaries in particular. So, like, I'm not knocking him, but, like, he does have the advantage of having the entire BBC Natural History unit at his beck and call, along with a massive team of people that are really involved and their lifelong work is to do this stuff. But, like you were saying, it's not just the idea of having to go to, like, Myanmar to get film. It's also the idea of having to go to Myanmar, one specific town in Myanmar, once a year for two days to get one three minute segment for a, a nature documentary. Like, that's not something a lot of people can do nature documentaries are among both at the same time very democratic and the least possible democratic thing you can think of because they require you to go to places people do not have access to they require you to go to places people do not have access to at weird times when no one should be there like there's just so many logistical issues with nature documentaries in the same way that there would be logistical issues. If you wanted to have a wrestling show where the guys really f- guys and girls really fought every night and put that show on 300 nights a year, people would literally die. So like there are these constraints that you force you to create these things, but it's interesting to see. And I think this, the revo- the evolution is similar from what you see in uh, the Seventy, the 60s the 50s 60s and 70s of nature documentaries which are these really fabulous fabricated ideas of what nature is and then um it kind of shifts you get a lot of like the Kratz creatures kind of stuff for kids you get a lot of kid based uh nature documentaries that are very flashy which reminds us a lot of the you know 90s of wrestling which i don't think is a coincidence but i also don't think it's uh intentional like i don't think nature doc i think that's just what the audience was because of where the monoculture was is that you could create a lot of stuff for kids to be watching constantly because there was only three channels that kids had that were dedicated to this stuff but there was three channels that everybody had it wasn't like a, a, like a, a network system. It was a cable system. So everybody would watch, like I watched stuff in the middle of the day. I watched nature documentaries and science stuff during the middle of the day on whatever cable channel or whatever. And then I went about my day. So I would watch this stuff. Um, but what you also see is in the late nineties, there's this shift because the constraints of film and stuff like that have kind of wavered and and the ability to bring cameras Two places have changed you see especially in blue planet which came out in 2001 like a real shift because what you get is the combination of the the narrative that you get from the first wave of nature documentaries but you get them on much more realistic terms so you get and you also get the weird violent the like hyper violence is now something you can see much more clearly than you could in 1960 like the lion country documentary i mentioned uh has a scene where they eat a wildebeest and they're like tearing it apart and it's gross but it's not like viscerally disgusting and then you watch like the first episode of blue planet the first blue planet and there's a scene where a bunch of orcas Kill a baby gray whale, and it is gruesome. It is like a 10 minute film of a six hour hunt where they murder a baby.
2: The gray whales try to outswim their attackers. Fast swimming pushes up the gray whale's breathing rate, a breathless calf is easier to catch. The killers work as a team. Their first goal is to separate the baby from its mother. The grey whale mother is a formidable adversary. She could seriously harm a killer whale with just one slap of her massive tail fluke. One of the attacker's pushes between mother and calf. The strategy is working. The grey whales are forced apart. With the baby separated, the killer whales change strategy. Now their goal is to drown the calf.
0: Like, and there's blood splurting everywhere. And like, that reminded me so much of watching like ECW.
1: I mean, I remember um, growing up, you know, uh, late eighties, early to mid nineties, watching a lot of, like, the PBS nature documentaries, um, and there's Nature, I think, is the name of that show, they still air them today, and a lot of them are really good, but I do really remember, uh, you know, maybe when I was 9, 10, 11, really starting to notice that, like, death was a major theme in every one of these, whether they were talking about crickets or condors or cats or whatever, Like, death was a major theme. And if there were three babies, there was going to be one baby at the end of the documentary. And the first couple of times you watch them, like, that's actually kind of harrowing, especially when you're a kid. But it it became a genre trope that I got numb to pretty quickly. Very similar to, you know, ultraviolence in wrestling. It's a really interesting comparison.
0: Yeah, and I think it's because we have this weird, like we've moved away from the hyper fabricated world of like lion country and white wilderness. And now we have these real documentaries, but we haven't realized yet like, Oh, if you keep showing baby seals getting murdered, people aren't really going to care about the baby seals anymore. (laughs) Like, right. They just think of it as a violent, gross show. Yes.
1: They're like, Oh, it's nice. They show you every time you settle in your chair and start really appreciating it. Suddenly they're slapping you in the face with death.
0: Yes. And and like you said, death is such a prominent and I understand death happens. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is it became a trope through which you would the only way they could get over is by blading. Basically. Like. Yeah, that's a great comparison. Yeah, you got to the point where, you know, guys
1: were, were just waiting for, for, for the blood to come. Absolutely. So they uh, you see some of those matches from like late 80s Crockett and guys are bleeding from their forehead like 30 seconds into the match and you're not even sure what the hell happened. Like, Jesus, that guy took a hip toss and he came up with color. What the fuck? <laughs> but, but no, definitely. When you, when you condition the audience to violence, you either leave them wanting it anticipating it which is gross and weird uh or you leave them so nervous of it that they can't enjoy the rest of what you're showing them in the moment so neither one of those outcomes is really a good way to lead your audience
0: god no and and there's a real like drop off i don't want to say in quality for me personally i really did not enjoy late 90s early 2000s wrestling and i think it's because they couldn't get off of the like they were hooked on blood and violence and it turned the show into this, like, like I said, this ever escalating, like, blood splurt. Like, <laughs> that's-
1: yeah, no, I think that it's like, if, if you think of, like, the Mick Foley Undertaker Hell in a Cell match, like, it, I know that that's a legendary match and we all love it. And it's a big, uh, you know, tentpole moment in everybody's career and in the history of the WWF and blah, 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 But it's like, that's <sighs> You're kinda watching, you know, uh, I'll say not a half, but you're watching like a fifth of a snuff film. Like you're watching someone hurt themselves in ways that they're still feeling today, more than 20 years later. And you're you're watching people uh you're, you're watching people hurt each other in real ways, but you're enjoying it because there's like this patina of fakeness over it. And sometimes nature documentaries can give us the same thing there's the distance of the screen and there's the distance they create by turning the animals into characters. I mean, we talk about death as a huge theme. Personification is also a huge theme, right? Turning the animals into people so that you can, uh, that you can tell a narrative. I don't remember where I was going with this or screen originally, but we can just run from there.
0: (laughs) No, that's, that's great. That's exactly what I was thinking is that like, and there's this weird, it's a superficial personification it is a personification in the most simplistic sense of literally we are applying human traits to these animals and human motivations, as opposed to trying to find the similarity between animals and humans, like where we have similar, like evolutionary paths and stuff like that. It was focused very much on like, they're just like us. And what you're saying actually reminds me a lot. The, uh, the Hell in the Cell match reminds me a lot of, I think, one of the last, if not the last, bit of footage from Blue Planet, which I think is much more gruesome. Though there, the height of gruesomeness is in Planet Earth, which I'll get, I'll get to in a minute. But in Blue Planet, one of the last things they ever show is orcas playing with a seal before they murder it like they kill the seal and just spend the entire five minutes throwing the seal in the air as high as they can from the water just to like tenderize it after it's been killed and it's yes it's nature and yes it's a real thing but it's like okay we get it (laughs) and it's it's kind of similar to like i will always think about orcas in a different way because of that. And maybe I should. Orcas can be incredibly dangerous animals and they should be treated as such. But, like, at the same time, it creates this sensational idea about orcas as killer whales, as violent murderers, which they're animals. They're just animals. They don't, like know what they're doing. It's
1: funny cuz like we talked about Disney earlier and obviously this movie was made long after his time, but like for people of my generation, I think the touchstone when it comes to Orcas is movie Free Willy, which is a Disney movie about a boy and his magical connection with a killer whale. Um so I think that part of what they were trying to do in in uh, Blue Planet that first episode was really dispel some of that so you have the kind of Disney myth of the noble, friendly, slightly anthropomorphic animal. And so they're saying sort of here, like, well, we're still going to personify these. We're still going to treat them as characters. But like, you need to understand they're not the cutesy Disney animals. It's not friggin' free willy. Like, this is serious stuff. And if you want to just think of nature, if you just want to think of these animals as sort of, like I said, you know, uh, noble, beautiful, lovable, cute, et cetera, et cetera. Like, you're really leaving out at least 50% of the story. And I think they really wanted to kind of hit you in the face with that kind of early in the run of those, you know, top tier massive global event david attenborough documentaries
0: and i think it's a similar idea with the idea uh, of the concept of worked shoots of like no you want to see the real side of the businessman. like it's this like we want to break kayfabe for your ideas of what this thing should be but they kind of and i love planet earth and i lo- like i love the edinburgh documentaries but watching the planet earth one was a little disturbing and it's also there it's stupid stuff like and it it reminds again reminds me a lot of ecw where it's like every other episode they have what they call a bait ball where they have smaller fish like in a giant conglomeration get attacked by a bunch of bigger animals and it's like it reminds me a lot of like flaming tables to flaming tables to like flaming tables stacked on top of each other. And it's like, okay, how many, how much more could it hurt to go through three tables than two?
1: Hell yeah. Like, and that's, I appreciate your uh, your uh callback to one of our earliest recommendations from Thinky e Wrestling Podcast right there. That was very good. But <laughs> I'm just going to say, I'm just going to give you one phrase, Nick, and you and everybody between the ages of, six and 80 or six and a hundred is going to have some sort of reference point for this. Ready? Wildebeest's crossing a river. What's going to (laughs) happen, Nick? What's the scene about?
0: Uh, I'm assuming some animal, maybe unexpected like a hippo, but most likely like a crocodile is going to eat the shit. Out of the saddest wildebeest. Yeah,
1: exactly. Wildebeests go to cross the river. Crocodiles eat them. It's frigging the international spot. It's tackle drop down leapfrog. Get it again. Like seriously, like that is a spot that is done in many nature documentaries. What do you do? You know, oh, when you're when you're really trying to make a serious point, when you really uh, when you really want to get the crowd's attention, what do you do? Oh, let's go to wildebeest crossing the river. It is so pro wrestling.
0: Looking at these old. Um, documentaries it is really remarkable how they are structured in every conceivable way to be a spectacle about um a confrontation and that's what wrestling is like i uh, i know i've said this i was amazed at how like structurally like similar even more so than like the music man last episode like this like that David Attenborough quote b- didn't blow my mind but it was like he sounded like a wrestling promoter.
1: <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. No, like I said but there was a there was some wisdom to what he was saying and there was also some weasel to it or so it seemed just tonally. Oh like, totally. Especially hearing I I'd watched the clip cuz you sent it to me a couple of days ago to prepare for the show, but I'd never kind of heard it with no video behind it. And with no video behind it, it really seems even more devious to me.
0: Yeah, and and I think um, that what you see in these these documentaries, and, and the reason I brought up uh, Planet Earth is because Planet Earth represents a transition between um, the like moving past the breaking of kayfabe of nature documentaries and the hyper violence still staying to just pulling out the kayfabe almost completely, uh, and but also not relying entirely on hyperviolence until, and this is important, there's an episode, it's in the jungles episode of Planet Earth, where chimpanzees literally cannibalize a smaller chimpanzee, and you see them like holding the face of the chimpanzee they just murdered. And it's this, like, orgy of unbelievable violence
2: they must wait and listen An unfamiliar chimp call raises the tension. It's an uncertain time. The size of the rival group is as yet unknown. Not far away, their neighbors are feeding in a fig tree, oblivious to the approaching dangers. The patrol moves off with a sense of purpose. They must remain silent until they close in on their rivals. is on to intimidate their opponents the aggressors scream and drum on buttress roots
0: and it works so much better because the rest of the documentary isn't like that it is one of the most gruesome thing gruesome things they've ever put on camera but it fucking worked you were just like oh my god i what Like it wasn't the fifth thing that you had seen that that was that gruesome. It was an incredibly gruesome thing, but it had such emotional resonance because they had pulled it back for so long. It's like when you see blood at WrestleMania, you're just like, yes, I've been waiting all year for this.
1: (laughs) Well, I guess that's like the whole point of a wrestling, uh, like an angle of promotion or, you know, a, a feud is to build anticipation for, you know, the one moment of, of heightened violence which in, you know, the world of wrestling and in the world of nature documentaries is supposed to kind of like signal reality. You know, that's why. So you just gave that great example of, uh, you know, showing the the one scene of intense violence. And that kind of helps you ground everything else. You know, you're thinking, oh, everything else was was so cute. Those animal stories were so great. I feel like I learned so much. This really is a great world we live in. And then you have that grounding moment that kind of brings you back to Earth, that reminds you that everything's real. This isn't just a fantasy world of Disney happy animals that you're experiencing. This is the real world you're seeing. And that's why they used to get color in the ring. Going back to you know the 50s, 60s, and 70s, was to quote unquote protect the fans, to protect the reality of the product. So that there was something where even though people said, Oh, that all that flip-flop and fly, that's BS that they said, yeah, but that's real blood that they're bleeding from real cuts. Mm-hmm. And that was what real that was why the wrestlers got color, was to create that moment of reality, even for fans who mostly knew that it was bullshit.
0: Yeah, and I think what's also interesting is looking at the structure of episodes, uh, because we're going to focus from now on mostly on, because like the Bear grills of the world are totally fucking fake, that is 100% fake that is basically shooting on location, a film on location it is not real like,
1: I remember when I first learned Bear Grylls stayed in hotels, I remember telling everybody I knew. That became like my new conversation starter for the next month. Like, hey, you know that Bear Grylls guy? He stays in hotels. What a jackass.
0: Yeah, I, I was there for that. <laughs> that was legitimate. <laughs> You're like, this Bear Grylls motherfucker. And what what's crazy with Bear Grylls... Pretend to eat poop. <laughs> is how much of it is staged? Like, one of the, the Montana animals um, group, they rented out a horse to Bear Grylls. And there's one of the most famous episodes of Bear Grylls, uh, whatever the man versus wild with Bear Grylls, is him trying to ride a horse. <laughs> Look very carefully. And I had not realized this. The fucking horse has horseshoes.
1: Oh man, they just made it see, they just they just act like he just like broke a wild horse and rode it like some kind of magical frigging horse whisper. Oh my god. That's that's incredible. That's a hell of a lie. That that's a see yeah. lie too. That's easy to see. Ugh.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but and you look at the David Attenborough documentaries and, and there's one specific and I, I may have mentioned it earlier but I wanted to go, go One specific shot David Attenborough did that was that they brought up in the the exposé that he is both embarrassed by and defends in a kind of, I don't want to say weaselly way. It's not fair to call it weaselly, but is a polar bear giving birth or, or, or not uh, with its young, with its baby. And they filmed it at a zoo. And it's literally like a 30 second shot in a career of tens, maybe like dozens of hours of nature documentary, uh, documentary filmmaking so i'm not like he's a fraud but even he was like you can't do certain things you have to fake them it's it, it like uh because he was like you would endanger the child of uh, the, the the cub the cameraman and possibly the mother to get a shot you can just as easily get in um a zoo And he, if you actually listen to the voiceover, he doesn't lie. He just doesn't mention that it's in the zoo and they credit the zoo in the end credits. So it's like one of those things where you're like, I could see why you did that. And it reminds me of like when Shane McMahon falls off of a really high spot and lands in crash pads (laughs) and, and everybody's kind of like, all right, we're okay with that. Like we understand that you had to stage this to do something spectacular and we are slightly bothered by the fact that it's staged, but we understand that it would literally lead to somebody's death if you didn't do it.
1: I'm going to play, uh, I'm going to play Jim Cornette, Jim Ross, wrestling traditionists here, uh, traditionalist rather, uh, and just play a little devil's advocate and then say, I'll even do my Jim Cornette voice. Well then don't fucking do it. You know, like, (laughs) If something needs to be faked because it's unsafe or impossible to do in situ, you know, in the natural environment, then just don't fucking do it. And if it's something where people would ask, well, why didn't they ever show a polar bear giving birth? Then have the narrator explain polar bears fucking hide when they give birth. They don't want creepy motherfuckers with cameras shooting a close-up of a fucking polar bear baby popping out. I don't know why I'm swearing so much on this episode. This is wild. But, like, you know, just to play devil's advocate, it's like, if something is really difficult and really dangerous... It's like, you know, the nature documentary, will will it really be that much better? Like, do we need to see Shane McMahon fall 40 feet for WrestleMania to be a quote-unquote good show? Or for people to come away feeling like they got their money's worth? Like, do we need to see the polar bear frigging being born for people to feel like they've seen a definitive nature documentary? I think that those are just, like, false expectations that creators... Uh, assume exist out there. And then they just really make their lives way more difficult and way riskier for no reason.
0: Yeah. And I I think um, the specific context he uses is, is reasonable in a way that I think the Shane is like an extreme version. He's literally like, I never, he was very specifically like, we were doing a documentary on the lifespan of a polar bear in general. So we thought it was an important thing to show in the documentary. And we had actual footage of it where with Shane, like you said, it's like, just don't book it. Don't have, you can have Shane do stuff where he jumps through a table, which might also have a crash pad, but that would make sense. Like I, I understand where that comes from though, in terms of there is a question, I think, and I could be wrong, and 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 obviously you're playing devil's advocate, but I I do kind of disagree with the advocacy, at least in the sense that maybe how do I put this? Sean a uh, Sean Shane should be on the card in these contexts where he's like in a feud that's a money feud, or not at all because he's not a wrestler. Sorry, just had to get it out there. Go ahead, continue. Yeah, well, I mean, he. Sorry, this is a whole other argument that we don't yeah. need to get into. No, no, no. <laughs> but I I think it's important because I think it gets at what role do the storytellers that we're watching have to get at how, how much can, I I think this is the question, how much can someone lie and still be telling the truth? And I think that's what, because Shane is really falling 40 feet. He's just falling onto a thing that won't murder him if he does. So like, I think and that's really a polar bear giving birth. But I think we do have to lower ourselves. And this is something we talked about in the, the disappointment episode, not ourselves in you and I sense, but in the Royal sense of understanding the expectations of just like watching planet earth two and understanding the amount of immense, the work that went into it is just as important as understanding. You might not be able to see a polar bear give birth because it's an incredibly dangerous thing to try to capture. And I think we have to, as an audience, not expect so much from people. And I don't necessarily think that uh, David Attenborough has the same issue that Vince McMahon does, which is that He's the one that made it that way. Like David Attenborough seems like he's just trying to do his job. Like do it well, where Vince McMahon is trying to sell you on the idea that you need to constantly be entertained.
1: Yeah. hundred percent. I think that's, you're getting at like a really fundamental difference. I, I threw around the word auteur referring to both of those people earlier, which might be kind of generous, but, um, but no, I think that's a key difference between them is that like Vince McMahon really, doesn't even need to define the space anymore because like you said, he already did define the space and now he has to sleep in the bed that he's made to mix metaphors. Whereas David Attenborough is just, just strives for excellence. I think that's kind of a difference. Once again, I think we're talking about maybe the difference between a more European kind of masculinity and a more American kind of masculinity. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, you know, the really, on one hand, you have Attenborough just striving to be the best, striving to do something that's artistic and intellectual and has cultural merit, and on the other hand, you have Vince McMahon trying to be the best, rule the world, make the most money, you know, recreate the world in his own image, etc., etc.
0: Yeah. Vince McMahon loves being a wrestling promoter. He validates himself through, like, how much money he has and how many enemies he crushed, where it feels like David Anderborough genuinely validates himself through his his like the quality of his work and the effect it has on like future generations of naturalists and stuff like that. Like it's a real, I understand I have an important job and not in a pretentious way, but in this is how a lot of people understand the world they live in. Where Vince McMahon is doing such a, honestly a trivial thing. I love wrestling. We have a podcast about it, but like I think they're also two very different things because wrestling isn't how we interact with anything really other than wrestling where nature documentaries are literally how a lot of people interact with the concept of the world around them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's really interesting too. Like I, I grew up in the suburbs and then I lived uh, in the city for several years, like in a city in an apartment. And like now I live in a rural area And it's funny that like many of the animals I see somewhat regularly, like literally in my own backyard now, I had no relationship to except uh, through nature documentaries until I was like in my late 20s. You know what I mean? It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Like you see every time I see like a a groundhog or a fox or a bald eagle in my background, I've got my camera phone out like a tourist freaking taking as many pictures of it as I can. Like, oh my gosh, it's a bald eagle. Oh my gosh, it's a deer. And it's interesting because like once again, a pro wrestling connection, I kind of grew up with these animals being hyped through the nature documentary to me living in the suburbs. Like I knew skunks and raccoons and the occasional lost hungry deer, you know what I mean? But like, the, the cool animals, the animals to get excited about were the ones on TV. So it's funny that even now as an adult living in an environment where there's more of those animals, I have almost like a Markish relationship with
0: them. And you grew up somewhat like where you grew up and where I grew up. Like you grew up in the hills, I, I think. I, you no longer live there, so I don't think it's that. You grew up in like the hills of San Francisco in San Carlos. Like I grew up in the suburbs of Long Island there is nothing resembling nature within like, like I've been to, I went to your parents' house. Like you were like, there were hills and shit like that. And like places animals could go in theory, like where I grew up, there was malls everywhere. (laughs) Like, And everything was paved. I think the other interesting thing with the way that documentaries have developed, especially the nature documentaries, and again, the David Attenborough style nature documentaries, which is that they have become almost like pay-per-view cards in the sense that you have matches. Each episode feels like a match that's trying to appeal both to everyone and to like specific audiences. And I think that's like an interesting uh, look at the way that you try to tell a narrative with relatively disjointed things. Like you don't, like I mentioned earlier with the bait balls, there's like three or four episodes in the first blue planet, blue planet with bait balls and they don't really do anything to escalate the trope. So it kind of falls flat the third time you see it where like they will do, there's this like tension in a lot of planet earth too. And it's ratcheted up and it's ratcheted up. But the most violent thing that happens is lions attack. I think it's a water buffalo, but the water buffalo survives. But since it's in like 4K HD, every single second that the lions are digging their, their claws and their teeth into the flesh of the water buffalo is this like visceral, like harrowing experience. And it's the same idea of like, them building to this thing instead of giving away the, that shot earlier in his, the episodes, they wait until like the fourth episode, like the jungle episode or whatever, Bec- but they also go out of their way to tell these like sweet stories. And even the like competitive stories, because the first episode is islands and there's a fight between gilla monster, uh, like um, yeah, gilla monsters, gilla monsters are the least cuddly, like thing, like cute animals, maybe on earth. So, like having them violently attack each other is kind of like just having Vader versus Yokozuna. It's like no one cares if they hurt each other.
1: <laughs> yeah, 100%. I mean, I, it's interesting. I, yeah, I, I'm just thinking of all sorts of different examples in my head. When you think of like card positioning, you know, of what order do you put the matches in? How does each one of them contribute to the overall narrative of the show? How are you you know, uh, peppering in segments that are kind of designed for different audiences. I'm going to talk about let me think of an example that just popped into my head right away of a show that's uh, a great, great show, but I'm going to talk about some problems with it. Uh, and that's Starcade 83, that first Starcade match. I'm pretty sure there is juice in every match on that card. And like I was saying, you get some of that Crockett juice in there where it's like a guy comes up bleeding like one minute into the match and you're like, oh, I guess whoever's bleeding now. Uh, but but there's that match on that card, which is the, the dog collar match between uh, Piper and Valentine. And that is, we, we were kind of talking about the uh, the symphony of violence earlier, right? Something peaking at a really kind of important, beautiful, odd, oddly beautiful, violent moment. And I think that that's a great match, the, the dog collar match. It's one of, if, if I could show someone just like one match that was like really bloody and violent but still told a great story, like that might be the one that I went with. It's a really crucial match but like the card really betrays it because there's so much blood up and down the card and there's so many personal matches on the card that it it kind of diminishes the value and i think you're right that attenborough and the, the team at the bbc who do these nature documentaries are really masterful in peppering different stories like there's different animals well some stories or some episodes of some of the documentaries are kind of focused on a specific species or kind of animal, but a lot of them, there's kind of different groups of animals. They're going back and forth through throughout the the episode. And, you know, one of them's got kind of a feel good story. One of them's usually kind of a predatory narrative. One of them might be about babies, whatever, but you've really got something for everything. And I think that that's something that those Attenborough nature documentaries do better than some of even the best wrestling cards. I mean, you look at what people were saying about greatest Royal rumble or even the last couple of WrestleManias, is there's no shortage of great matches and there's no shortage of great wrestlers, but the way the cards are put together don't make the matches as resonant as they could be. The overall presentation of the card is taking away from the individual matches rather than than elevating the most important aspects of them. I think that's kind of a lost art in the wrestling world right now.
0: Yeah, oh, 100%. I I think um, that what... The WWE used to have a problem with was, and wrestling in general, was that like you would always have one bad match on the card, right? Like one match that was a fucking stinker from the get. And now they don't really have that issue in the same way that you no longer have to film or tell a story around something in nature documentaries, especially the BBC style, because you just have so many cameras that do so many different things. You can film whatever you want for as long as you want, however you want to do it at night, during the day, whatever. That became a way to like, just be able to do whatever you want. And now they kind of have that with professional wrestling, but they haven't figured out a way to have all of those stories, like amplify the resonate, the resonance of the other ones. And that's the thing that I think is the next evolutionary step and the way wrestling shows are booked. And you see it a lot in, like, independent shows and NXT shows because there's not this expectation of constant spectacle. It's that some matches are going to have disappointing endings, which will make A, their actual blow-off two shows from now even better – And we'll make the actual payoff at the end of the show for the match you really wanted to see even better than it was because you're like, oh, the other match I wanted to see had an ending that was wonky but legitimate, and I want to see like a clean victory.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. You know, I'm I'm gonna actually, I'm gonna give some credit here uh, to a specific company. I think one company that's doing this really, really well right now is MLW. The way they put the cards together, they always have like such a variety of stuff, like. There's everything from like, uh, Barrington Hughes, who is like impossibly fat and, you know, does his like 10 second long matches, which are just kind of meant to be silly and get some fun pops from the crowd. You know, it's like the spectacle of him taking off his robe and you're just like, wow, that's a big fucking guy. (laughs) And then he does a splash and that's it. Uh, but then on that card, you also have high flyers, you know, you have uh, really talked to your women's wrestling with like Santana Garrett and stuff. You have, you know, Matt Riddle, who, you know, if not for marijuana, might be a champion in the UFC right now. So I like I think MLW is a company that actually is out there putting a lot of thought into uh, the, that, that kind of sauce that ties everything together. It's like the cornstarch in the Chinese food. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's that secret ingredient that makes everything more unctuous and kind of pulls everything together. It's just that magic combination of different elements for different people and different matches that are designed to bring the crowd up and down. And I give a lot of credit there because like Court Bauer, who books MLW, and he was, bro- not broken in, I don't want to say, but like really, really influenced by, by uh, Gary Hart. You know, just like a, an old school pre Vince McMahon genius Booker. So I just wanted to throw that out there that that was one company that I thought was doing a really really great job at, at what we were kind of pointing out as a current deficiency in the
0: WWE. Yeah, and I think the WWE is definitely getting better at it, but there are there are companies who have figured out that the show itself is a show itself, and like that's an important distinction that the WWE kind of like is just starting to realize like. You can't just throw good match after good match after good match. People Mm -hmm. just don't care. Because it becomes like when LeBron scores 15 points, everybody's like, what the fuck? And it's because he scored 30 points the last six games. And you're like, well, why didn't he score – 30 points right. and it's like do you have any idea how hard it is to score 30 points in a professional basketball
1: that, game? That's like people who who didn't like or I won't say didn't like because they reason titled their opinion obviously but that's like people who were trying to say that like Styles and Nakamura at WrestleMania wasn't a good match and it's like no no that was like an excellent match and told a super effective story and the turn in it is really well done but it was in like one of many death spots, you know what I mean? On a very, on a very, very bloated card, and like I said, that was that match is a perfect example, like the dog collar match of something that was just kind of missing that element that ties everything together. But yeah, I mean, when you and I first started wrestling wrestling together regularly, what like twelve years ago now, something like that. I mean, when we were watching WWE pay per views and we were paying full price for them every month, but like we were just dying to see like good matches. And this is the like Randy Orton, Triple H, John Cena kind of edge era, Batista, I'll throw him out there too, of the WWE. And it was like, we were dying for one or two good matches and it didn't really matter where it happened on the card. You just wanted a good match. Now it's literally exhausting how good all the matches are. (laughs) I rarely watch pay-per-views in one sitting anymore. Even the NXT takeovers are only two and a half hours. Like like, Like for example, I watched the whole show up through the title match this last time. And then I waited until the next day to watch Gargano and Ciampa because I was already like, I've seen so much great wrestling. You know, I've seen the moves I've seen the drama in the ring and I know that this is going to be the best of all of it, but like the, the, the the burnout factor was there. So uh, I don't know where I was going with this again. Like I said, I can, I can barely watch these pay-per-views in one sitting now because they're so jam packed with good matches, which we used to be starving for.
0: And I think, I don't think it's an accident that um, at least for uh, planet earth, it's half the length of the original planet planet earth two is six episodes. The original series is 11. Like they realized like we covered a decent amount of shit. I think we should be good. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's eight episodes of blue planet one and I believe six episodes of blue planet. No, there's seven, but the last episode is about us. So it's not really
1: oh, yeah.
0: a blue. Planet. I know episode you're
1: talking about. Yeah, sorry.
0: What's up? Oh, I said, I know the episode you're talking about. It's about, it's like about people's effect on the ocean. So it's not even really one of the episodes in the way that the other six, like there are two less episodes and five episodes because what they realize is like, yeah, we have all of this amazing footage, but we really should focus on telling two or three or five stories incredibly well instead of seven stories with recycling the same footage basically so, yeah, I, I think there's this, like, world of knowledge that wrestling can look at because they're so similarly, they, like, their DNA is so similar that I think, the weirdly, the future of professional wrestling is in nature documentaries.
1: Would you say that nature documentaries contain the DNA of TNA?
0: <laughs> Did Matt Morgan make it? Um Dave, I have to end the show. That was awful. That was awful.
1: (laughs) That was for the like, that was for the exactly (laughs) 1.1 million people who were watching Impact
0: every week at that time. And none of them, I think, other than you watched Blue Planet or Planet Earth. So (laughs) that's not gonna, I apologize.
1: I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. They they if they were big shark boy fans they might but, have checked it
0: out to see if he made an appearance. I did not think of that. That's totally right. Um so yeah, that was- He was from the deep blue sea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just thinking of him as stone cold did he have, was he like stone cold shark boy or just shark boy
1: uh, I think he was just shark boy I just I my favorite thing of that gimmick was instead of drinking beers he was drinking clam juice which is the most disgusting idea on earth going to all four corners of the ring and drinking from like a little supermarket bottle of clam juice
0: Live the gimmick man <laughs> Whew. Um. Yeah, so that, that was uh the episode So yeah, Dave, uh, we have an announcement coming But uh, before we do that, I want to do the Thinky Wrestling Podcast section of Thinkiness uh, You have yeah. two episodes this week?
1: Yeah, I got two things for people to check out I'm going to recommend just one episode generally And then uh, a specific conversation from another Although I definitely recommend the, the whole thing as well uh, But there's a particular part I want to focus on So let's start there Uh, My first recommendation is the May 2nd episode of Dinner with the King, Jerry Lawler's podcast. And the conversation that I want you to zero in on specifically goes from the 28 minute 30 second mark approximately through the 37 minute 30 second mark approximately. So about nine minutes from 2830 to 3730. And uh, they are talking about Titus O'Neill slipping and falling under the ring apron at the greatest Royal rumble. Um, but <laughs> it's, it's really frigging fascinating because, you know, uh, I, I've known many people in my life who've had um, parents, grandparents, spouses, other loved ones who, who've had strokes. And one thing I've heard from everybody uh, I know who has a, a loved one or who has themselves had a stroke is that, you can be 99% the same after your stroke, but you're never 100% the same. Like everybody is just a little different because there's a part of your brain that just like isn't working anymore. Uh, and like, I think that Jerry Lawler is obviously still Jerry Lawler. But if you listen to, let's say, the four episodes of his podcast before his stroke and the four episodes of his podcast since his stroke, I don't know if it's just like a temporary, he's kind of like living in the revelatory moment thing, or if it's, you know, kind of a slightly new version of him, but he talks about the business in a different way. Now, if you listen to his podcast, it really has changed and he really has become a lot more open about the way he thinks about the business and the way he develops ideas. He used to kind of always talk about, you know, the great ideas they'd come up with in Memphis, and he was just kind of telling old war stories. But so from that 28.30 to 37.30 minute, he talks about all the ideas that he has come up with for Titus O'Neill since last Friday. He he says some of them, but he obviously, you know, saves the best ones for off air kind of thing for the actual money. But it's just a great example of an old school wrestling promoter really talking out a money idea. Um, It's so interesting. He talks about, you know, different skits that Titus could do. He talks about, you know, he literally talks about like, well, have you thought about contacting the Hasbro people about doing a slip and slide commercial? Like he comes up with just 20 different money ideas for Titus O'Neill. And it, it, it's just a, a really special look into, you know, like I said, how someone who was a really, really smart promoter and booker thought. So check out that uh, clip on Dinner with the King. It's really interesting.
0: Yeah. For all the problematic parts of Jerry Lawler, he is one of the great professional wrestling minds in history. Like,
1: yeah. And he, he doesn't care to be recognized as such. We kind of talked about Vince McMahon earlier. as like the ultimate alpha male. And like Jerry Lawler is ostentatious in certain aspects of his character, his sexual appetites or whatever, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I had to tell everybody that he got his stroke, getting a blowjob job because that's the kind of guy he is. Oh, sorry. If that word offends anybody, oral sex. Um, But, uh, but, but at the same time, like he wears his wrestling genius so lightly, like, you know what I mean? It's almost like he understands that 99.9% of the world, that doesn't mean shit to them. You know what I mean? So he's like, I'm not, I'm not going to act like I'm quote unquote, the King, I guess, plan intended of, of this thing that nobody cares about. So it's really, really interesting. And like I said, I feel like since his stroke, He really has opened up a little bit more on the podcast and really kind of shown that reflective creative side of him because he's a really smart worker in that you feel like you know his TV character or you feel like he is his TV character. And there's just these little moments recently where he's kind of been letting it shine through that he's not. And I thought this conversation about money ideas for a guy who fell on his face, literally, it was just so
0: interesting. Yeah, that sounds great.
1: Yeah. And then number two, I'll make much quicker. (laughs) Um, This is a full episode. This is This American Life. I recommend these a lot because I'm, you know, an NPR nerd here. Um, This is actually a really old episode. I think it was a story that they originally ran in 2005, uh, but they reran it most recently on April 22nd. So if you go in your podcast app and look for This American Life, April 22nd, uh, the episode is called Heretics, and it's about a prominent uh, Southern preacher who was considered Oral Roberts' black son, who literally became a modern heretic uh, because he came to the conclusion that there was no hell and preached accordingly. Um, So it's just a really interesting story about orthodoxy and heresy. And I feel like that is a topic that we've brought up in kind of several different episodes, this idea of you know, on one side, you always have people who are trying to build an orthodoxy and kind of what are the inherent problems of that? And I think you see a lot of those play out in this this American Life episode. Really fascinating. It's called Heretics. So
0: that's it. Uh, so we have an announcement. It's a, an exciting one. It's a good one. Uh, we are actually going to be going... Um, I don't know how to describe this exactly. We are going to go into a format, a weekly format, but not every episode will be an episode like this. uh, There aren't enough thoughts in our heads. Yeah. Yeah. There's also not enough topics in the goddamn world. Uh, (laughs) There's only so many things that are like wrestling, but because of that, we've decided to every other week. So we'll have an episode like this, this week and the next week, which is when this is going to premiere, we will be doing a mini episode. um, Similar to the one we had previously with, Uh, The Ultimate Deletion. Uh, But we will also... One of my favorite episodes. Yes, uh, a great episode. You should definitely go back and check it out on the feed. Um, But we will be doing episodes like that and announcing the next week's episode in that show. So it'll be something you're going to want to listen to. And in each episode, we are going to introduce... uh, We haven't figured out exactly how we're going to do this and what's going to qualify. But uh, introduce something, someone, a show... A, a, a weapon, a gimmick, whatever, to what we like to call the wrestling canon. Now, we are not prescriptive. I am not a prescriptivist. I, do, I don't know what, how Dave lives his life. I'll so,
1: moralize all over you. Don't worry. <laughs> um,
0: but I will. Uh, our goal will be to give you people to watch, not necessarily that these are the most... They are important figures, but they are not the only people in the canon. They are just people we believe belong in the canon. I I, want to make that as a clear distinction. We are not trying to create a definitive list of the most important people in the history of wrestling. What we are trying to do is highlight important people in the history of wrestling so that we can then talk about them in further episodes and don't necessarily have to re-explain their entire career. Uh, We thought it would be a good way to do it. It allows us to have a show every week so we don't get lost. And we wanted to talk about wrestling more, to be honest. So that that's um, that's going to be more for straight wrestling fans, though I think people who aren't watching, res- don't watch wrestling or haven't watched it in a while will enjoy that uh, just as much. But it is going to be geared more towards uh, wrestling fans in particular. And like I said, we will be announcing the next episode. Uh, Dave, did you have anything to mention that you were looking forward to? in that i, I don't know uh,
1: no I'm, I'm excited at the prospect generally though uh, like you said you know not trying to create an orthodoxy to get back to the point i was just talking about um but just kind of throwing some people out there some match types some major events etc etc just moments or people or ideas that we think are, are really important to talk about and like you said it, it'll just kind of inform future discussions think of these as like the the notes to the main series they're they're an excellent complement and you know they're they're really for if you're if you're into the show already definitely friggin check them out I'm gonna make sure that even though they're uh, more wrestling centric I'll definitely be digging deep to dig up all sorts of uh, kooky references and uh, oblique strangeness to bring out
0: yeah well because that's our brand is oblique strangeness um so we will be announcing um the the topic for our first mini episode we're still trying to figure out exactly who we want to do because it's gonna tie into the next episode but um. We will be uh, releasing that next Friday, uh, so a week from now. And uh, we hope it will be on the same feed. Nothing else is going to change, but we wanted to let you know that we're going to be producing more content. Uh, So I guess that's all we have to say. Uh, Did you want to add anything else before we go? Your plugs? Uh,
1: Check out The Wrestling Estate, www.TheWrestlingEstate.com. Check out our weekly round tables. Always an excellent discussion uh, with tons of different wrestling minds chipping in. Uh, Also, follow me on Twitter at DaveWritesJunk. Uh, I think I had my most active day on Twitter in about five years in terms of arguing with people today. Um, So I'm equal parts uh, enthused to continue to build my Twitter following and uh, hesitant to ever go on there ever again. Uh, But you can follow me and see if I continue to tweet or not.
0: Uh, and I am at the Nixter. that's T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-T-E-R. I am still uh, going along with Juice Make Sugar. I will be releasing a preview for this Sunday's Backlash. Uh, I will be fantasy booking, which uh, is where I look at the dream, the nightmare, the hope, and the reality of every match that's going to come up on Sunday. Uh, and then I will be reviewing it on Monday. And also, if you haven't read my Raw Regurgitated review, uh, you should definitely check that out. That is JuiceMakeSugar.com. You can also follow us on Facebook. Uh, Both How Wrestling Explains and um, Juice Makes Sugar. Just look them both up on Facebook. And uh, yeah, I guess that's it.
2: Wild ass. The males are fighting to win territories. Those that hold the best are more likely to attract a herd of females. It's a frisky business. That counts as a victory, but he can't assume the females will actually turn up. Female asses are mysterious creatures. They come and go as they please, and much of their behaviour seems unfathomable to an outsider. They're the great nomads of the plateau and will often trek vast distances across these parched plains in search of oases. But when they do find paradise, they are liable to feed and drink for just a few hours and then head back to the dust for no apparent reason.